Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be when a law well, hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we got a really important uh, conversation we're going to have over the next half hour or so. Uh, both my guests, who I, I'm going to officially introduce them in a second, but they, they're out in Oklahoma. And they've both been on the show before, um, and they're they're in a lot of eyes right now are on Oklahoma because uh, this one state uh, here in the United States has lined up more executions uh, at one point than anywhere else in the country. There were twenty five executions lined up um, every three weeks or so, I think it was, because that's the maximum amount they felt like they could carry out. Uh, in their minds uh, without traumatizing the folks that are responsible for those. So we're going to hear more about that. But I want to first say that a lot of you are joining from other countries. Some of you are listening to uh, this recording afterwards. Um, But right now, um, our country is wrestling with a lot of things. (laughs) But one of them is the future of the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And when I was born just uh, a short 47 years ago, um, most of the world was executing people. Uh, More countries than not were carrying out executions. Now, like just in our lifetime, most of the world, over 100 countries have abolished the death penalty. And there's just a handful of countries that continue to use the death penalty uh, and, and we're one of those. We're, we're always in the top 10. We're often in the top five uh, executing countries in the world. Um, and we, we, we're continuing to evolve and rethink how we think about this. I mean, even our country has uh, changed different ways that we carry out executions. We've changed the criteria for what warrants a death-worthy crime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of us, uh, fueled by our faith, want to see alternatives for the death penalty. Um, and I, that's why I've dedicated a lot of energy to this. And even for folks yeah. in other countries that aren't executing, I want you to put your momentum and your prayers and all the energy that you have um, to help us move beyond the death penalty. So the folks that we're going to talk with today, uh, one of them is Adam Luck, who you're going to, I want you to hear more from him of his own story, but he, I think of him as a person of deep conscience and faith uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, for a while, he's worn a lot of different hats, but he was the the uh, chair of the Board of Pardons and Parole in Oklahoma. Um, and I'm not going to say too much more because I, w- I want you to tell your own story, Adam, but it's good to see you, buddy. You too. Thanks for having me. And the other guest is Abe Bonowitz, who's one of my dear brothers. Uh, I always say he's one of our uh, best Jewish red-letter Christians out there. <laughs> but he is fueled by his own faith and conscience. He's one of really the legends in the abolition movement, um, working for all 
the the full abolition of the death penalty. He's one of the co-founders of Death Penalty Action, uh, which I I get to uh, chair the advisory board and and do this work together with. So it's good to see you, buddy. Um, coming from Oklahoma out there. Glad to be with you. Thanks, Shane, for pulling us together. Yeah, so we're doing this because it's a little time sensitive, and we're going to talk about Richard Glossop in a minute. But first, Adam, I just wanted you to share a little bit about your own story. I mean, we did a full show on it. You're, you're. I hope I'm allowed to say it. You're writing a manuscript. It's going to be incredible. Yeah. But I mean, your your story is 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 so important because I think it shows that the more people think about this, the closer mm-hmm. they get. Often, yeah. the more <clears throat> hesitations we have, and you've seen this thing firsthand. So talk just a little bit about how your own faith um, and conscience led you to where you're at right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again for the invitation to come speak um, and share with you. I grew up in Oklahoma and moved away for a number of years. I was in the military and then finished college and grad school and came back with my family in 2015. And um, shortly after moving back, I was appointed to the state board of corrections where I served for three years and visited every prison in the state. And then after that was appointed to the pardon and parole board where I served for three years. The final year, I was the chair of the pardon and parole board when Oklahoma lifted the moratorium on executions and started executions again. And so, uh, you know, throughout that experience, I feel like leading up to being on the pardon and parole board, I had thought a little bit about it, but at the time there was a moratorium. So we weren't doing executions. It wasn't really a part of the conversation and joining that board. But um, obviously once the moratorium was lifted, we all, had to really carefully consider what that was going to look like. And all five of the board and parole board members at the time had never been through a clemency hearing process. And then the state of Oklahoma, the case has to be presented to the partner and parole board before it gets to the governor. So mm-hmm. unless the partner and parole board votes for clemency, the governor can't act. And, uh, and like you said, Shane, you know, that proximity to this system, the system that we've designed to make these decisions on behalf of our society arguably one of the most important decisions we can make about one another, whether we live or die, my proximity to that system. I think people are surprised to hear that not only did it, did it not give me any confidence. I think most people would think the closer you get to a system like that, the more confidence you have about how things work, you know, you get to see the inner workings of it. And for me, it was actually the opposite. It removed any confidence that I had about the system. And in fact, it raised many serious and persistent questions and, ultimately guided the votes that I was able to cast in those five clemency hearings in which I voted for clemency and ultimately gave me the conviction to to resign from the board when the governor asked me to because I wasn't voting against clemency. And um, and that was just over a year, just over a year ago. So, you know, and Abe, you know, has been somebody who's really helped me out since then taking that conviction and, and what I saw in that kind of proximity to the system and figuring out how to share that experience. Because I I think the value now that I can provide to these conversations is, is one of perspective. There aren't many people who have had to sit in that seat and cast a vote about the life of another human being. And I think because I had to sit in that seat, I thought about it at a level that most people just don't because Mm -hmm. they don't have that proximity to the system. And, you know, folks like, like Abe and you, Shane, have helped me figure out, okay, now how do I share that with people so that they realize there's not actually as much distance between them and these systems. And in fact, yeah. in the state of Oklahoma, these are being done on our behalf. You know, the death yeah. warrant reads, we, the people of Oklahoma, and the manner of death on the death certificate is homicide. 
Right. So if you don't agree with that, then that has to mean something. We have to do something about that. And so that's, that's part of the work now is um, helping share with folks the thought process that I went through and coming to those conclusions. And then to the degree that we can using these types of conversations to help change the hearts and minds of people in Oklahoma. Yeah. And I, so I, I think there's so many layers of your story that like, I mean, every time I'm with you, they lift my spirit, they encourage me because they show that there's thoughtful people in the midst of these systems and structures that um, are often become an interruption. And sometimes that means that they're pushed out of the, um, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, authority to, mm-hmm. I mean, even, even jurors, you know, I was on a, yeah. a jury poll that, uh, you know, if, if, if you couldn't say that you were, you could vote for the death penalty, you were removed, you mm-hmm. were kind of removed from the role that you were appointed to. But I, it seems like what, what I've heard you say is, as you look at thousands of these cases, there came a point where you realize the system is never going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the death penalty, there's just not you, there's no space to get it wrong. As our friend Derek Jameson, Jameson said, mm-hmm. like, you can't bring someone back from the dead. Like, you don't get a right. second chance with this. And mm-hmm. it's why, you know, when I was out there with you, Adam, we we saw um, some of these um, state legislators with cowboy hats that are conservative. <laughs> I, I find that, the, like, the categories liberal and conservative really clunky and unhelpful most yeah. of the time. But these are folks that are not, like, bleeding heart liberals, right? They, they believe right. in being tough on crime, and yet they started to see some of the cracks in the system that mm-hmm. you saw. So this is not mm-hmm. just a progressive or liberal thing, but these are folks that are questioning, like, do we trust our system? with the irreversible power of life and death, right? And that, that yep. that's a question that you were asking, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I think, again, you don't really apply the kind of moral weight that it requires until you're in that situation. So for me, I had to answer these foundational questions about the death penalty as a system before we can get into these case specific questions. And that's often where we see the argument skip to is, Oh, well, do you believe in the death penalty for someone who's committed these crimes? And so I like to just take a step back and say, actually, I think before we get there, we have to answer these foundational questions. And one of them was for me, and this is what I wrote about this weekend in the paper about Richard Glossop's case, which is that killing innocent people is an inherent part of the capital punishment system. Mm -hmm. And so I believe you, you have to come to terms with that, acknowledge that, that that we will never get it perfect. Mm -hmm. So you have to pick how many innocent people are you okay with killing to maintain the institution of the death penalty. Because if your answer is zero, then you don't actually believe in the death penalty. And so, you know, we can look at, and there's obviously a lot of different ways to parse this out, but the, but the the reality is in the United States, we've executed just over 1,550 people since 1976. We've exonerated now 190 people. And again, yes, there's different reasons why those folks were exonerated, but that that represents 12% of the total number of people that we've executed since 1976. And I know it's not apples to apples, but if we were just to assume that that's the going rate of how many people have ended up on death row that were actually innocent, that's one in 10. Yeah. And so, and so what's your number? That's kind of the question that we have to start with. Cause then, then you have to answer questions of proximity. And this is kind of what I wrote about. It's like, you know, for me, I'm answering these questions like, okay, well, if I'm okay with one in 10, then am I okay with knowing who that one in 10 is? Yeah. Am I okay with that one in 10 being my family member or my friend? Because we can't say I'm okay with one in 10, as long as it comes from this part of the state or this neighborhood, or they look like this. 
Yeah. And, and maybe you can say that, but if you're willing to admit that, then really you're just highlighting what kind of life you value and what kind of life you don't value. And it's important to acknowledge that. And ultimately the last thing you got to answer is the, the highest level of proximity is, are you willing to be the one in 10? If that is your number, are you right. willing to be the one in 10? And this is kind of where, you know, Abe and their signs and the death penalty action is, has done this work to make this point really well. You know, you've got to answer that question. And so, you know, again, for me, it elevated the conversation out of these case specific questions about which scenario do you support the death penalty in and rose it to this more fundamental level of before you get there, you've got to answer these basic questions about the, the institution of the death penalty. And each one of the cases that I voted on, there were case specific reasons, but, but it was really hard to even get past that point for me. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I, the reason I want to talk about Richard Glossop in particular is because sometimes we talk about the death penalty as this monolithic thing, you know, that, that feels so big. And yet there are names and faces behind the damage that is being done by the death penalty, both like murder victims, family members, um, folks in the the, the uh, you know, criminal justice system that are have the, the terrible job of carrying out these executions. But then there's there's folks that are innocent. And you, you made this point. And, and when I was writing Executing Grace, uh, Abe actually told me I had to change my statistic because I was saying um, one in every nine. Uh, w- there's one exoneration for every nine executions, and it's now one in eight. Um, and, and that I, you know, sometimes I use the analogy if there were nine planes that were taken off and one of them crashed, we'd all be like, all right, we got to stop flying. And yet that's exactly what we, you know, our track record is with the mm-hmm. death penalty and why Sister Helen and so many others say that the question sometimes is not whether someone deserves to die, but whether we deserve to kill and whether we trust our government that much. And mm-hmm. so let's talk about Richard Glossop, babe, um, because this is one of those cases that is so haunting because his innocence uh, of this murder has never been in question. The person that we know that everyone has known carried out the murder um, is did not face the death penalty. Um, and and so I think let's let's give people a little bit of backdrop, even though this is continuing to unfold, you know, before our eyes, we were counting the days uh, until the, you know, uh, the day that that he was set to be executed on May 18th. I think it was that's been temporarily stalled. But this is like we never know what's going to happen next. And so what we can begin with is that on January 7th, 1997, there was a terrible crime, a, a terrible murder that took the life of Barry Van Trees, uh, who was the hotel hotel owner of the Best Budget Inn. And I think we always start by grieving with the victims of, of that crime. But then what unfolded next, I want you to give people a little black backdrop for Abe of why this is one of the most profound cases of, of how broken the system is in our country. Well, I think, thanks, Shane. You know, I'm I don't want to call myself the expert on the Glossop case, but I think all of us can become experts very quickly just looking at SaveRichardGlossop.com is their web page. And um, but what I think is really important for people to know is that he was on his ninth execution date. He's had three last meals. The last time he was almost executed was he came within an hour or two of being executed in 2015, and they had to stop it because they realized they'd ordered the wrong drug. To carry out the execution with, and 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 the amazing thing is that in the meantime, somehow these pro death penalty Republican, you know, rancher 
legislators, somebody showed them the film Saving or Killing Richard Glossett, and which anybody can look at online. Um, and they started to ask questions and they started to investigate. And the amazing thing is that they came around to the question that, you know, wait a minute, all these things are happening that make me ask questions. So they actually got legislation to, I'm not sure how it actually worked, but they, they got it outside of the state law firm to investigate the case. They spent 30 hours or 30 attorneys spent over 3000 hours investigating this case and looking at them. They came up with a report saying this guy's innocent. And then the attorney general, the new attorney general did his own study and said, yes, this guy is not guilty of murder. Okay. Um, and it took all of that to get us to this point. But I just had a conversation with one of these representatives, uh, Representative McDougall. And I got his book. Thank you. Know, yeah. <laughs> this was just the other day. And I said, you know, all these things that you're talking about are problems in the Glossop case. They exist in almost all of these cases. Hidden evidence, you know, prosecutorial misconduct. I'm not saying every single case, but there's lots of lots of problems. And and by the way, there's five more people scheduled to be executed in Oklahoma in addition to Richard Glossop. And that's the bigger picture. And all those, you know, they're all horrific crimes, but Anthony Sanchez in, sep in September is actually more innocent than Richard Glossop. And I can say that with pretty good certainty. Now, the challenge that we have in this country is getting evidence looked at. And, and that's the challenge that, that was you know, brought front and center through Richard Glossop in his case. And yeah. these pro-death penalty legislators, that's the remar remarkable thing. They testified at the clemency hearing. The attorney general testified at the clemency hearing. Other prosecutors testified at the clemency hearing, former prosecutors, and they all said, they all said I'm for the death penalty, but it has to be pure. It has to be, yeah. you know, we have to have it, you know, make sure that we got the right one. And all of those people are having to confront the fact that they believe that they have the truth and yet there's no way for that truth to be heard in a court of law. Let me just let me just pause uh, real quick to say, uh, if you're just joining us, the, the voice you're listening to is A. Bonowitz, who's the co-founder of Death Penalty Action. And I'm talking with him and Adam Luck, who are out in Oklahoma. Uh, they've been vigiling and uh, uh, organizing to stop the execution of Richard Glossop, which was scheduled for uh, on May 18th and has temporarily been halted. But we're giving a little bit more backdrop of that. Go ahead, Abe, and then I'll, so, I'll jump in. Yep. There's, there's lots more we can say. I know our time is limited. So, um, you know, I want to make sure that people know Richard, save Richard Glossop com. That's where you can find out all the information about him. But if you want to find out about all the rest, go to deathpenaltyaction.org. And then tomorrow, well, as we're recording this tomorrow, there's going to be a big rally in, in front of the state capitol. Uh, and this is another one of those rare things. We've got this, this, this big TV guy, Dr. Phil, who's going to come and headline a big rally. That's a very rare thing to happen in any kind of case like this. And that's yeah. going to come and shine more of a spotlight on this. And hopefully he will also be one of those people that says, hey, if this is happening here and it took all these resources to expose it, shouldn't we be looking at everything else? And yeah. Oklahoma, there was a death penalty study commission that found 40 things that need to be addressed. Not one of them has come up in the legislature. And that's what we're asking for is a moratorium on executions. And so they can address all these things to make sure the system is fair and accurate. So that's happening. And then here where we're at at the Lazarus community in Clark United Methodist Church here in, in Oklahoma City, there'll be a prayer service uh, to, to pray to stop executions and do better for all victims of violent crime. 
Yeah. And if you miss these, y'all, or if, if it's after the fact, just know that Death Penalty Action is organizing vigils. Uh, and you can join from anywhere in the world around every execution that's being carried out in our country. We're working for alternatives to the death penalty. Um, and um, just a, a little bit more backdrop on uh, this particular case, Richard Glossop's case, um, is that uh, so Richard had no criminal history at all. Um, when uh, his co-worker at the Best Budget Inn, the, the owner, was uh, murdered, um, um, a, a man named Justin Sneed was uh we believe responsible for that murder. He's actually confessed to that murder. Um, and um, the, the, he was addicted to uh, drugs. He had a, a, all kinds of criminal history. Um, but what happened was a lot of the evidence was suppressed. Um, uh, we, we haven't even seen, the defense hasn't even seen the videotape of the surveillance video. There was no um evidence, uh, DNA or fingerprints or anything that linked Richard Glossop to the crime. It was only based on the the words and of uh, the, the person who actually committed the crime who did not end up getting the death penalty. And so all this is also about like truth and justice for the victim of, of Mr. Van Trees, uh, for, for, the, for his family. So like Adam, when you when you were looking at these cases, I mean, this is one of the things that struck me. Even in this case, the parole board was split, right, to to vote for mercy, to vote against the execution of Richard Glossop, because it's pretty clear that he didn't commit this murder. Even the attorney general uh, supported the Supreme Court appeal on this. So, I mean, this is not just a defense. This is not speculation. It's pretty much everybody saying he did not commit this murder, and yet we're still fighting around the clock to try to keep the execution from taking place. So say a little bit about why, like, about that brokenness and how some people would say, well, the system worked because his execution was stopped. But this story's not over, right? Yeah, yeah. You hear a lot of people say that as the reason for not intervening that, well, they've had their day in court. They've gone through the appeals process. And yet what we're seeing play out with Richard Glossop's case is that even when the state's highest elected law enforcement officer has completely lost confidence in the state's case, it is very difficult, if not impossible for him, will, time will tell, whether or not he's able to stop this execution. In the state of Oklahoma, he had to ask the Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest court in Oklahoma, to vacate his conviction. And the Court of Criminal Appeals in a five to zero vote uh, and this is what Representative McDougal pointed out in the in the uh, press conference last week, the ties with the district attorneys and retired district attorneys who are on the Court of Criminal Appeals, you know, they voted to deny that request. So you have a, an attorney general who then has to come to the clemency hearing, which has never happened. Attorney generals never come. Attorney general has also never joined this, joined the defense in asking for the board to grant clemency. And like uh, Representative McDougal said at the press conference, if we move forward with this execution, it'll be the first time in the history of the United States that we have executed somebody that the law enforcement officer, the attorney general has said, I don't want them executed. Wow. Mm. And so we have the attorney general at the clemency hearing saying, he literally said, this is a direct quote, I believe this board should support a recommendation of clemency based on a complete record that includes evidence the jury did not hear. I believe it is a great injustice to allow the execution of a man whose trial was plagued by many errors. Mm. The attorney general is saying that at the clemency hearing, and yet it's still a two to two vote. 
And by the way, the person who recused himself, you know, he, he decided not to come, which, you know, is what it is, but we end up with a two to two vote, which procedurally means that it was denied. You have to have three votes. So the bar gets higher when a board member is not there. You have to have more. You technically have to have more votes. So it's tied and it got denied, which means the governor can't act now. So I think, you know, to your point, Shane, even when the attorney general wants him to stop, we see how difficult it is to stop an execution when we have serious doubts, serious concerns. And the attorney general is saying, I have actually lost confidence in this case. The prosecuting attorney in Oklahoma County said, if this case came back to me, I probably wouldn't even pursue it. Mm-hmm. And certainly wow. wouldn't be a death penalty case. And yet here we are, you know, and so this, the drumbeat of process and procedure and appeals keeps us all marching towards executing someone who is innocent. So powerful. And we just got a minute or so left. And uh, this has been a powerful half hour with uh, Abe Bonowitz from Death Penalty Action and Adam Luck. Adam, I want you just to say in the last minute or so the role that faith plays in all this, because I think we we kind of, um, you know, people have different political persuasions and there is a powerful movement of conservatives concerned about Mm -hmm. the death penalty. Demetrius Minor, Sam Heath, others from EJUSA have been out there. But there's also uh, like it, it shouldn't be overlooked that uh, the governor who really holds so much of the power in this, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is a professing Christian. And many of the legislators in these states that are carrying out executions, um, they, we, you know, are professing Christians. And so um, we need Christians uh, to raise their voices, right. And, and to wear their faith on their sleeve, really, as yeah. we, we try to build alternatives. So you want to say a word about that as well? Yeah. And uh, Shane, I think you do such a beautiful job of just acknowledging that people come from lots of different places. So who am I to be in a position to judge anybody else's beliefs? So, I mean, let's just start there. I can share from my own perspective and journey through the proximity I had to these decisions that I, that I did, I had to sit with what are the implications of my faith? So it sounds trite, but just asking like, if this was Jesus's vote, how would he vote? So that was the process that I went through. And so for the first time in my life, I I took a question to scripture and found the basis for my belief in scripture rather than the other way around, rather than taking my belief to scripture and saying, let me find the basis for my belief here. And I think you talk about that, Shane. And, And that to me, having that level of openness combined with the weight of needing to make a decision caused me to take it really seriously. And, and so through that lens, I look at the life and teachings of Jesus. And I mean, you know, I just, I couldn't come away with any other conclusion than that. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So we're praying for Governor Stitt. We're we're asking Christians in Oklahoma and around the country and even around the world to stand up for mercy because that's what's at stake right now. But we really want to make sure that you know about the annual fast and vigil that happens outside of the Supreme Court. And it's coming up just in in a few weeks. So, Abe, give us a little backdrop for the fast and vigil, bro. Well, thank you, Shane. Um, you know, you've been a part of this a number of times. This year is actually the 30th annual fast and vigil mm. to abolish the death penalty. It takes place on the sidewalk in front of the U.S. Supreme Court every summer between June 29th and July 2nd. June 29th being the anniversary of the date in 1972 when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the death penalty in the Furman versus Georgia decision. And that forced, they didn't say the death penalty is unconstitutional, but they said it was unconstitutional as it was being practiced, that it was more likely you could predict a lightning strike than who would get a death sentence or, or strike, reverse that. It's more likely you could predict who could get a death sentence than a lightning 
a lightning strike. But anyway, June 29th is the Fermi decision. July 2nd is the anniversary of the Gregg decision, decision, which allowed the resumption of executions. And it's those four days that we've chosen as a symbolic time to have a, a fast and vigil. And people make up, the, you know, you, you, just, you, you set up your own fast. Some people just, you know, fast. I do just water only. Some people give up coffee. Then we get they get cranky and we ask them to start drinking coffee again. But but the uh, point is that we're, it's a symbolic time to be together in opposition to the death penalty. And and that's happening in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. You can find information about it at abolition.org or deathpenaltyaction.org. And, and people come from around the country and sometimes from other countries to stand with us and um and it's it's really a fascinating time. It's a great time to be together as abolitionists. And each evening we do a teach-in and have different experts on, on various aspects of the death penalty come and share their perspectives. So it's a powerful time and everybody's welcome. Yeah. So in those evening programs, you can listen, you can tune into the live stream all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's so powerful. And it's it's really like the converging point of folks all over our country and some international folks that are working for the end of the death penalty. So where can people go? They can go to death penalty action, but is it still abolition.org as well? Abolition.org or on, on Facebook, Starving for Justice. Um just uh, cool. you can find it. Just search fast and vigil at the Supreme Court and it'll come up. It's our 30th year. So join us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.